Acts chapter 2. Just to bring us up to speed from where we left off last, the disciples have been waiting for just over a week now. And if you're like me, you're wondering, okay, what did they do during that time? Well, I think they did exactly what we talked about last week. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. I believe they were all together in the upper room where we last left them. They were there because of faithful obedience. They were living in loving community. They were devoted to prayer. They were committed to God's word. They were there because they were humble and submissive as they were waiting on the Lord. In many ways, this was like any ordinary day. So you could say in some ways God moved in the midst of the ordinary. But at the same time, there was really nothing ordinary about this day at all. In fact, in the original language, verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. When something is fulfilled, that means it had to have been previously planned. So the day of Pentecost was a day that God had planned. This was the day that was not ordinary. Pentecost literally means 50th. It's the 50th day after the celebration of the Passover. It was also known as the day of first fruits, and that's significant. So don't lose sight of that. This is one of three pilgrim feasts that took place during the year when people from all other nations who had been dispersed from Jerusalem then would return to Jerusalem for the celebration of of this feast. It was a very joyful celebration. This was one of the most popular feasts of the Jewish calendar. It was during the celebration of first fruits that the first fruits of the spirit would be fulfilled. In God's perfect timing, this is the beginning of something new. And yes, it will be a most joyous celebration. Look at how it continues, chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. That's important to understand as we read the accounts of what happened in that upper room that what took place, whatever it was, was beyond the limits of human language. Luke says that it was a a noise like a violent wind. It was not a violent wind. It was something like it, but something altogether different. It was beyond the boundaries of normal human experience. They said it was a heavenly sound. It it had a divine origin, but apparently it was audible enough that it got everybody's attention. That divine movement of God filled the upper room. And then it says it filled all the disciples. I believe all 120 of them gathered in one place. And and I find that in and of itself very significant. Because the Holy Spirit did not search out and only come to those who were 
the spiritual elite. It fell on those who were of strong conviction and those who were still fighting to believe. It it fell on those who had deep biblical understanding and those who were new in their faith. The Spirit of God fell on everyone in the room with equal distribution. It filled the room and then it filled the people. Anyone there who was waiting on the Lord in faithful obedience, was filled with the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 3 that it appeared as tongues of fire and rested on each one of them. And just as the timing of God's movement is significant, so is the appearance of God's movement. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the ascension of Christ and we talked about how that cloud came and Jesus was was lifted up into that cloud and we talked about how that wasn't just some white puffy cloud in the sky that in fact it was the glory of God being put on display as the risen Christ was lifted far above the heavens by the presence of God among those people we know that because of all the many times in the scripture where the presence of God is is defined with this imagery of a of a cloud We know that a cloud filled the Holy of Holies. A cloud was upon Mount Sinai when God's people gathered around it. It was a a cloud that led the Israelites by day. And it was a fire that led them by night. Right alongside the imagery of a cloud is the imagery of fire. But very often when you look at that imagery of fire, the fire of God's presence in the Scripture, it's often talking about judgment. The Bible describes the the judgment of God being poured out like His wrath being poured out like fire. You may remember that scene in Exodus when the people had gathered around Mount Sinai. They described God as a consuming fire. You don't have to turn there. Let me just remind you. It's in Exodus chapter 24. It begins in verse 15. And listen to how both of the images are being portrayed in this passage. It says, Then Moses went up the mountain, talking about Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai because the cloud is the glory of the Lord. And the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. In the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. God was a consuming fire. And we know that because of his judgment of sin. That's why when Moses came down from the mountain with the law of God. He had a very clear boundary in place upon which the the people could not cross. And he even warned them, if you cross that boundary, you will surely die. Even though they prepared for this day, they washed their garments, the scripture tells us. They were ceremonially clean. But their heart was stained by the curse of sin. And that sin demands a judgment of a holy God. 
But here, in the upper room, the fire of God's presence rested upon each of the disciples and they were not consumed. This can only mean one thing. And that is, the curse of sin's stain has been removed. These disciples were there out of obedience to Christ. They believed that He was the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world. And so the fire of God's presence can only be a blessing if the judgment of sin's curse has been removed. The fire of God's blessing can only be a blessing if the judgment of God's curse has been removed. I want you to feel the weight of the significance of what is happening in this moment. This is not some power detached from Christ. This is the power of Christ indwelling the disciples. His life-giving spirit creating something new. See, the church of Jesus Christ was born in this moment. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, these 120 disciples would radically change the world from that moment on. It says that in that moment that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, that they began to to speak in other languages. I personally believe that at at this moment, they began to walk out of the upper upper room to uh, the temple area. The reason I believe that's the case is because these languages were not for them. It's for all the other people had begun to gather because of the attention that had been created by this noise that everyone heard. And when they saw the disciples making their way to the temple area, they heard them speak in their own languages, known languages, spoken by other people. These are languages of those other nations that had gathered for this pilgrim feast. Now look at what happens in verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak, them being the disciples, in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And then how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born, our native tongue, Parthians and Medes and the Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Remember, as I said in the beginning, this is one of the most popular pilgrim feasts of the year, which means practicing Jews from every nation have now gathered in Jerusalem. And even though most would have spoken Aramaic as the common language for for commerce and communication, they each came from a different part of the world. 
And within that part of the world, they had their own dialect. And what they were hearing from the disciples was messages that were spoken in that dialect. Known languages spoken by various people groups from all over the world. And the people are saying, are not these who are speaking Galileans? Now, the reason they're saying that is because Galilee was not exactly the hub of high society. Okay? Galilee was not a hangout for the religious elite. It's where fishermen and farmers lived. Simple folk who lived simple lives. But now these are the ones who have everyone's attention. What I imagine happening here is as the disciples leave the upper room, they make their way to the temple area where, as we will see in the verses that follow into next week, thousands of people have gathered to hear what they have to say. And they make their way through this crowd. The people who have gathered are hearing them proclaim God's word in their own language. The nations listed here are in five basic areas of the world at that time. If you were to look at the map, it's kind of like a backwards sea. Starts down in North Africa, goes up Mesopotamia into what is modern-day Iran, over to modern-day Turkey, and then over into Rome. And really, what you'll see there is a foreshadowing of where the gospel will soon spread. Because when the disciples go to the uttermost parts of the world, that's where they go. But in this moment, representatives from all those nations are now in Jerusalem. The crowd is not only amazed with who is speaking, but it also says they're amazed at what they're speaking. Verse 11 says, they heard them speaking the mighty deeds of God. Now next week, we'll kind of get a picture of what that looked like when we look at what Peter had to say to the crowd. But based on that example, I think it's very evident that what they are speaking, these mighty deeds of God, are how the promises of God were ultimately fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the message that they were speaking. That's what had everyone's attention. And I don't know that it was anything necessarily new to the crowd. Because this was the same message spoken by Jesus all throughout his ministry. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at what Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, spoke. Let me remind you, because I think this is a, a sample of what was being communicated. It says, And the father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David, his servant. And he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from old, salvation from your enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. It goes on and says, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, which was the sunrise from the high that shall visit us, to shine upon us, who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And I am convinced without a shadow of a doubt that they turn to the crowd and says, that has been answered in Jesus Christ. He is the promised Messiah. The disciples were proclaiming how the promises of God 
will ultimately fulfilled through Jesus Christ. He is the long-awaited Savior. He has risen from the dead. The disciples could tell them, we have seen him with our own eyes. He has died upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you believe, the judgment of sin's curse will be removed. And we also know that to be true. I believe the people were amazed, not because this was some new information. I believe they were amazed because this was the message of Jesus. And they thought it would end when he died. His message continues. And not only that, it is being validated by divine intervention because everyone is hearing it spoken in their own native tongue. Look at how it continues in verse 12. And they, the crowd, continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are filled with sweet wine. The message of the cross will always, always divide the crowd. There will be those who believe, And there will be those who deny his power. You may remember during Jesus' ministry, he makes a very curious statement that I think relates to what's happening here. If you want to, you can turn there. It's in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. And this is Jesus speaking. And listen to what he says. He says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members of the household will be divided, three against two and two against three. There will be divided fathers against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I'm not so sure that what Jesus had in mind when he spoke to these, these words had at least in part something to do with what was happening at Pentecost. Because what then happens at Pentecost continues to be repeated in every generation. You cannot be on the fence about Jesus. The message of the cross will always create division between those who believe and those who deny His power. The message of salvation brings division, like we see happening here in Jerusalem. But I want you to keep in mind that this is a message being spoken to a religious audience. We know that's true because in verse 5, it tells us that devout men, devout men from every nation have gathered. But what we learn from their response is that they were devout in different ways. Some were devout out of religious duty, and others were devout out of desperate need. They were devoted out of duty because they believed that their their efforts were sufficient to earn God's favor. They didn't need a miracle 
So it was easy for them to discount the obvious one in their presence. Oh, they're just drunk. They've had too much sweet wine. Just offer your sacrifice and everything's okay. In the eyes of God, you're good. It's all it takes. But then there were others in the crowd saying, no, no, that's not all it takes. Because I know as soon as I offer one sacrifice for sin, I will sin again. And there are not enough sacrifices in the world in my lifetime to cover what I know is in my heart. I need God. I need God to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I need a miracle. The message of the gospel will always bring division. And that division will center on the issue of sin. Now, in recent weeks, we had a royal wedding. Anybody listen to the royal wedding ceremony? Pretty entertaining, actually. It was given by a a man by the name of Bishop Curry, a black man who was a dynamic preacher, if if you listen to what he had to say. He really pushed the boundaries of kind of that royal tradition. In a lot of ways, I liked it. I liked what he was doing. He was very passionate about his message, very demonstrative in his presentation. He quoted Martin Luther King when he said, We must discover the power of love, the redemptive power of love. And when we discover that, we will be able to make this old world into a new world. Love is the only way. And there's great truth in his message. But there is also something missing. Because Bishop Curry did not speak of the love of Jesus demonstrated on the cross as an atonement for sin. In fact, Bishop Curry supports the expression of love well beyond the boundaries of traditional marriage. As long as it's love, it makes everything okay. It'll change the world. And I want you to know that very likely no one was offended by what Bishop Curry had to say. He might have been irritated because of how he presented it or how long he took to present it, but there was no division created because of what Bishop Curry had to say because he did not confront the issue of sin. He never mentioned the cross. As we will see next week, the crowd will be divided at Pentecost precisely because of the cross. Those who discounted the miracle did so because they did not need a Savior. They were able to manage their sin through religious duty. Those who were asking the question... What does this mean? They needed a better solution than what they could come up with on their own. Only those who confront the issue of sin ever see their need for a Savior. It was true for them, and it's equally true for us. Only those who confront the issue of sin will ever see their need for a Savior. But for those of us who long for a Savior, 
For, for those of us who even now are in desperate need of a miracle, there are important things about this day we, we, we can't overlook. And, and so let me just highlight some of the things, the, the magnitude of the miracle, if you will, that took place on Pentecost. The first is this. At Pentecost, there is a new creation. Okay, don't miss this. At Pentecost, there was a new creation. The, t- the disciples at Pentecost were, were born again. And, and to understand the magnitude of this miracle, I want you to go back to Genesis. Because the very same Spirit that was present on the day of creation, when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, is the very same Spirit that came from the heavens and descended into the room and indwelled the disciples. And at that moment, they became a new creation in Christ. And in the very same way, at the moment you believe, the same is true for you. The old is gone, the new has come. And why? Because the power of sin has been broken. The curse of sin has been removed in that moment. So that the presence of God can indwell the people of God. Yes, we we still have to make a choice to obey. But we need to understand, because of what took place in the miracle of this new creation, we are no longer a slave to sin. It is broken. The curse is removed. It's why Paul can write in Romans chapter 6. He says, even so, consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are a new creation. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. He's explaining something to to these people, this audience, that's never happened before. You were a slave to sin. You could do nothing but choose to sin. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But in that moment, you became a new creation in Christ, and the power of sin was broken. He goes in verse 14 and says, For sin shall not be your master, for you are not under law. You are under grace. You are a new creation in Christ. A new creation Because of the new covenant. Uh, I talked about that scene in Exodus at Mount Sinai. When Moses came down from the mountain with the law of God. He came down from the mountain. If you remember, it was a terrifying experience for everyone. There was thunder. There was lightning. They were fearful of what was taking place as as the presence of God descended the mountain. and, And there was a boundary which they could not cross. Because they could not enter into the presence of God that would judge the sin of their heart. And they would instantly die. The law was given to Israel, not as a way of redemption, but as a reminder of sin. It was given so that they would see their need for a Savior. The sacrifices they made did not remove sin. They were a reminder of sin. But at Pentecost, something new happened. That old covenant that that, that separated sinful man from a holy God was replaced with something new. 
Jeremiah describes it. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah chapter 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. There's a lot that will be fulfilled in this promise that God makes. But I believe at least in part it was being fulfilled here. And the reason I say that is because in the Last Supper, at that Passover meal, Jesus said when he took the cup, this is a cup of a new covenant in my blood. We no longer live under the curse of the law. We live according to his forgiveness and grace. Our staff recently went through a a great little book. It's a quick read by Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I encourage you to read it. You could read it in a day easily. This book, one of the premises that it talked about is how Christians no longer are in the courtroom. They're no longer on trial because a judgment has been made by the only one, God, the only one whose opinion counts. So, so there's freedom in this reality knowing that we don't have to perform in a certain way in order to receive a good verdict. But a verdict has been given, so that allows us the freedom to live in obedience. In other words, we don't obey so that we can be forgiven. We are forgiven, therefore we obey. What Romans 8 tries to tell us. It asks the question, who then will bring a charge against the ones that God has chosen. It answers it by saying, remember, it's God who justifies. And it asks another question. It says, well, then who's going to condemn? And the answer is no one. And it explains why. Because it says Jesus is interceding for us. Our judgment is based upon what he accomplished on our behalf at the cross. The verdict has been determined. Why that verse goes on to say that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, things present or things future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation could ever separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because it is finished. The verdict has been made. And you are a new creation in Christ because of a new covenant in the blood of Christ, through the forgiveness of sins. A new creation, a new covenant, and a new community in Christ. The Holy Spirit filled the upper room. And then it filled every single person in the room. Not just a portion of the Spirit, not just some of the people, but all of the people with all of the Spirit. Those who were of one mind. We're now in one spirit, standing together for the sake of the gospel. In that moment, 
the church was born. And everything, everything that was true of the disciples is equally true of us. And here's the good news. This is great news. What happened at Pentecost is just the first fruits. That was the celebration, right? It's just the first fruits, which tells us that the best is yet to come. This is just the beginning. There will be a day when that new creation spreads to a new heavens and a new earth. And, and it's not just the Spirit of God indwelling the people of God. We will live eternally in the presence of God where there is no sin, there is no sorrow, there is no regret. But the perfect plan of God's salvation is perfectly fulfilled for all eternity. Where the new creation comes along because of a new covenant made possible within a new community who exists eternally in the presence of the saving God. Don't miss the magnitude of what took place on Pentecost. Because the miracle, if you need it, if you desire it, if what you have is insufficient in itself, if you look to Jesus, that's the miracle that he promises today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Pentecost. Praise the Lord that your promise was fulfilled. That you did everything you said you would do. And you've continued to give that blessing of salvation upon those who believe. But yet we know, Lord, we live in a world that, that there's division. There's division between those who believe and those who deny its power. Those who are desperate and those who are doing just fine on their own. And Lord, I pray that we as your people will, will always live with that tension of, on one hand, being desperate because we know apart from you, we can do nothing. But in that same breath, know that through you, all things are possible. Because your presence dwells within us. Your power is work within us. Father, we are the people of God who are indwelled by the power of God so that we might fulfill the mission of God all to the praise and glory of God. Lord, help us be faithful because of what you accomplished. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.